0: Good morning everyone. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 12. Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 12. Jesus sends out the 72. After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the workers deserve his wages. Do not move around the house from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome to go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Amen.
1: So in Luke uh, chapter 10, the passage that Maureen's just read from us, when Jesus sent 72 of his followers out to spread the gospel, he gave them confidence, verse 2, that there was a plentiful harvest. Moreover, it was the Lord's harvest. And so they were not going anywhere where God wasn't, and they certainly weren't going anywhere where God hadn't already been at work. Now, I'm a I'm a city boy, but even even I know that The harvest isn't just something that turns up, that before we're ready for harvest, there has been a lot of work put in, a lot of preparation done. And so when Jesus says to his followers that the fields are ripe for harvest, he's saying God has been at work. God has been before you. God has been preparing. You're not going anywhere that he's not been. Now, that didn't mean it was going to be easy. And in verse 3, Jesus says they were going out like lambs among wolves. But the Lord was going with them, indeed had gone before them. And so they had a reason for being confident. Now, confidence is the first feature that I'm highlighting on this series on Mission Shaped Living, that passage in, in Luke 10, in the sense, is the kind of foundation passage and in verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives us grounds for being confident. Not confidence as something that we have to kind of muster from within ourselves, something we have to work up, but a confidence that comes from knowing Jesus, knowing what he cares about, and knowing that we can trust him. And knowing that though there's a lot of opposition in the world to Jesus, Jesus, as he said in John 16:33, Jesus has overcome the world. So I want to look at confidence and confidence in Jesus' message in the middle of a challenging and an unbelieving world. And I want to look at that with um, help from the Apostle Paul in the passage in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In that passage, Paul makes clear what he was seeking to do when he came into a new place in his missionary journeys. In this case, it was Corinth. And he's telling the Corinthian church, verse 18 in chapter 1 through to the fifth verse in chapter 2, he's telling them what he was about when he came. He was telling them about what he was putting his confidence in, reminding them exactly what or who he was depending on, what or who he was relying on, and also saying some of the things that he didn't rely on. So listen then to the word of God as as Jim reads it to us, as Paul describes that ministry, that mission to the church in Corinth.
2: This morning's reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, reading from verse 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe.
1: It's bigger than we know, bigger than we can understand, bigger than we can explain. Someone who's an expert maybe in biology or human genetics, and someone who knows all about fertilization and reproduction and pregnancy and so on, when that person sees for the first time their newborn child or newborn grandchild, and when the eyes meet, they, they feel something that no matter their expertise, they cannot explain it in just physical terms. A physicist might be able to explain what happens when an instrument's being played, why the bow scraping on strings makes a particular sound, or how air travelling through it, the brass instrument is affected when different valves are pressed. Someone else might be able to explain something about the theory of harmony to us, or, or counterpoint, or whatever. But it it remains elusive, though, doesn't it, to try to explain why we find particular pieces of music so inspiring, so moving, so consoling. And despite many advances that we've made in what humans can do, despite many theories and attempts to explain life and the deepest mysteries of humans, love, death, joy, beauty, and so on, these things go beyond what we can explain. People have tried all kinds of ways to try and understand and explain. And that's the wisdom that Paul refers to in verse 20 of our passage. He's not using wisdom in in this section as some kind of combination of intuition and insight so that you can steer a good course through life. Sometimes wisdom means that. It means knowing what's the right thing to do. It's different from knowledge. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and not a vegetable. But wisdom is knowing that you don't put tomatoes in your fruit salad. But beyond that, wisdom in this sense here was an explanation of everything. It was a, something that would sort out the choices and values of, and priorities for life. In Corinth in this day, at different schools of thought, it might have been stoicism or sophistry or Platonism or a number of other options, all having their different explanations for life and life's purpose. But one thing that they all had in common was that they were seeking to make sense out of life and death and the universe. And into that mix, Paul says, comes the gospel which does not start by seeking to explain everything, does not begin by claiming to be better and know more than all of these other theories. It's a message about Jesus, and in particular about his crucifixion. In verse 21, the apparent foolishness of that confounds all these other things, because there is no public philosophy of life that can be reached when you begin at the cross. The cross does not explain or lead to communism. It does not contain the seeds of thought that grow into capitalism. The survival of the fittest, the go out and enjoy yourselves, the don't worry about anything, the virtues of democracy, the tune in to your inner self, none of these are consistent with or emerge from the cross of Christ. And yet, Paul says... This is what God has revealed. This is how God has shown himself to the world. Whatever the merits, whatever the flaws of philosophies and self-help techniques and so on, none of them address how to reconcile God and humanity. None of them deal with the estrangement from the Creator. None of them, verse 20, can uncover God's wisdom. And so there is no way that through our own ingenuity or our own self-discipline that we can save ourselves. We are part of the problem. We are among the group who need to be saved, all of us. Now, the other approach that Paul mentions in the final verses of chapter 1, or verse 22 and following, is those who were looking for signs. There were some people who weren't so concerned about the wisdom and having every I dotted and every T crossed to understand things, but what they wanted was some big display of power that would give sufficient credentials to God to make him worth believing in. But again, that puts people above God. Yes, those who were demanding signs were maybe asking for something that they didn't have power to do, but they were still putting themselves in the driving seat because they were going to evaluate whether the sign was good enough. Hmm, God, that's not bad, but you need to do a bit better kind of thing. They were going to assess if God has done enough to convince them, going to test his credentials. Now, if Jesus had given in to every demand for an impressive trick, he would just be some clever performer. And so again, as with wisdom, this kind of demand is is still with us today. I will devote my life to God if he heals my child, or if he gets me a better job, or if he rescues my marriage, or if he performs some kind of miracle that removes all doubt. But then it's me assessing him. I'm not coming to Jesus on his terms, but I'm stipulating the terms that he has to live up to if he wants the privilege of my company. And so both groups, both the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul is speaking of in these verses, are self-centered. Both the demand for signs and the pursuit of wisdom treat God as though we have the right to approve Him. By contrast, verse 23 says, Paul, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And it is an astonishing claim, isn't it? That the solution to the world's problem, that the rationale for understanding the deepest mysteries of life are found in the crucifixion of some peasant carpenter in some wee backwater of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion wasn't simply a way of killing people. It was a tortuous humiliation and a disgrace. And to claim that one of the many who were crucified is in fact a son of God, was doing what just seemed ridiculous in the world's eyes. It's a bit like talking about fried ice, a considerate rapist, an extravagant miser. It's a contradiction in terms. A crucified God. And to the onlookers, when Jesus was being crucified, there was nothing that suggested his execution was all that special. There wasn't some halo around his head. There wasn't some divine glow. There weren't some doves fluttering flit- above him. Just a slow, low, groaning agony of an excruciatingly painful death. And crucifixion was the death that was reserved for the disgraced, for the failures. And yet Paul insists that that scene of devastation and failure is the very fullest picture of the power and wisdom of God. It is there with the crucified, shamed, and humiliated Jesus of Nazareth that we see the wisdom and the revelation of the Lord who made the universe. So when we try to fit God into our ways of thinking, he just doesn't fit. He didn't fit in for the religious leaders in Jerusalem, nor did he fit in for the sophisticators of Corinth. And he didn't fit in for those who were wanting tricks. And he just doesn't fit in for us either. Now, it's not the case that we have to become stupid to appreciate the gospel. We don't say, leave your brains outside if you want to worship. But we are saying that we cannot grasp this heart of the gospel if we look at it by way of conventional of ideas of power and wisdom. But let's face it, years and years on of human progress, where have our conventional ideas of power and wisdom got us? We have to let God be God. We have to accept that salvation is His work, that it's grace freely given, available for all who believe. And it's this then, that gives confidence and courage that we need to be witnesses for Jesus. Paul's not dependent on the power and, and wisdom of his, of his argument. There's going to be somebody over there who's got a different take, a slightly better argument. He's not dependent on saying, I can do this, this, great, this great miracle. There are others who are going to do puzzling things. No, he's saying, here is the love of God worked out. So what he's got, he says, verse 1 of chapter 2, is testimony about God. In particular, verse 2, it's about Jesus who was crucified. It's not that Jesus as teacher, Jesus as healer is unimportant, but his work climaxed in being a sacrifice for sinners. It's the great work of reconciliation between the creator and the creatures, between a holy God and sinful people. And it's about more than getting some kind of article of belief or creed correct. It's a way of life. For we cannot make the crucified Christ known without ourselves, as Jesus said, taking up our cross and following. And so it's ridiculous for the church to seek or want to have some kind of triumphalistic sharing of faith. It's ridiculous for the church to say it has to have something that's designed to impress, calculated to go down well with the literati. It's not for us to put some kind of sugar on a gospel pill so that the medicine can go down. We need to let the cross speak. Here is the love of God, here is the victory of God made evident. We serve, as Jesus said in Luke 10, as lambs among wolves. And we serve, as it says in verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 2, in weakness and trembling. And ultimately, what does it rest on? Verse 5. God's power. So here's the question. When Jesus was being crucified, do you think God knew what he was doing? Now, the Bible claims that crucifixion was something that Jesus headed towards, something that the Father deliberately gave him up to. It wasn't that Jesus was forced into a corner and thought there was nowhere else to go, I better try and make the best of this. I'll try and turn it around and and make it into good news somehow. No, this was God bringing to a head the promises that he'd given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. This was God working this through. And Paul's resolution as he entered Corinth, verse 2 of chapter 2, was to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's a challenging example to us. It doesn't mean there's never a place for explaining and reasoning with others. It doesn't mean that we simply repeat, repeat, Jesus died for us, Jesus died for us, without trying to show the worth and significance of that. Of course, Paul talked about Jesus' life and his resurrection and so on. But what he affirms here is his determination never to be deflected from the central importance of the cross. And if we believe that God knew what he was doing in sending his son to the cross, so it can be with a confidence that we share the good news. Not a confidence in us and our arguments or our skill. Not a confidence in the way that we might package this message. But a confidence that this is what God meant to do. This is what God had purposed. And this is how God was making himself known. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, it says in the book of Revelation. That is the praise of eternity. And so the cross is not something to be ashamed of or diffident about. We can be, we should be confident in its sufficiency. Because God is. God hasn't said, oh, I tried crucifixion and resurrection now, I better find something else. No. The gospel is still the gospel. Jesus died and rose again for us. And so we need to be committed to that message, not just as words to say, but committed to it as a way of life, a way of declaring that we are committed not to the goals of secular humanism or whatever today says is all important, Because God at Calvary knew what he was doing. And if he knew what he was doing, and if it was moving on these promises and purposes that he'd revealed to Abraham way back in chapter 12, there's going to come a time, because God has promised, when all of creation will be renewed, not on the basis of what we think is just and right, not on the basis of what we've discovered in in ourselves or anything else, not on the basis of what we've invented or achieved or worked out, but on the basis of the loving salvation of God made real, given to us through the cross of Christ. Now, it's a service in which we'll be celebrating communion sharing in these gifts of bread and wine that take us and point us to the cross and say, here is the sufficiency of God. Take confidence in that. And as we approach the table, which is the Lord's table, we sing of the worthiness of that crucifixion of Jesus for us. Oh, to see the dawn.